Genesis chapter 29. Here, there, there it is. Genesis chapter 29. Interesting chapter. Really interesting. In fact, I struggled a little bit <clears throat> with which direction I wanted to go with this chapter. Because in this chapter, we're going to discuss a guy who gets two wives. One of them unexpectedly. <laughs> what are you doing that? And what kind of applications can you draw for today's world where you wake up with the wrong woman? Uh, kind of a thing. Probably a lot of applications, actually, we could be drawing. But I'm going to take it to a little bit more of a positive slant as we look at Genesis chapter 25, and chapter 25, chapter 29, and we try to make application to it. If you're part of the Restoration School of Biblical Studies, here are the five questions that I have put together for you. Screenshot that. If you're not, you can use them for your own personal Bible study anyhow. All right, did you get them? Very good. As we move into Genesis chapter 29, I'm going to give the theme of a crazy little thing called love. Perhaps you remember that little jingle from the past. A crazy little thing called love. Because <clears throat> there's a, and I say this reverently, there's a crazy little passage about the love between Jacob and Rachel that I just, I've always loved this. I love a passage about love. Anyhow, because it's just so sweet. And I want to draw several applications from it. This would make a really good sermon for Valentine's Day. But in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 20, you're going, you have these words. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because he loved, because of the love he had for her. Now, the backstory from this, if you don't already know it, is that uh, Jacob has had to run away from camp because he's stolen the, the blessing from his brother Esau. And he ends up many miles from home at his Uncle Laban's camp. And he has fallen in love with Uncle Laban's daughter, Rachel, younger daughter. Uh, and uh, he's fallen in love with her, and he's made an agreement with Uncle Laban that he would work for his uncle for seven years in order to marry Rachel. And that's what this particular passage is all about. However, in the process, <clears throat> just to give you some more of the <laughs> interesting highlights to this chapter, in the process... The night he goes and has the big party, thinks he's going to go in and sleep with Rachel, he ends up waking up the next morning with Leah. Now, you may be asking yourself, how do you wake up with a different woman didn't know who you're sleeping with all night long? And I didn't want to share this during the Bible class time because of children, etc. I think there's a lot of possibilities here. One of which is they may have drunk entirely too much that night, and so he's in a drunken stupor as he goes off to bed. I can't prove that. I don't know that. But for whatever reason, it's pretty obvious in the text that Jacob's going to wake up the next morning, he's going to be sleeping with the wrong woman, and he's going to go to his uncle, and he said, what'd you do to me? And uh, his uncle is going to say, well, look, it's not our custom to give the youngest daughter away first. And so you've got to take the older one, too. And in that process, it's going to say, the last, I, believe, I think it's even the last verse of this chapter, it's going to say that he loves Rachel more than Leah, and you can understand why he would. All right, that's kind of the negative side of the chapter. Now let's come back to the positive. Whatever you do with what has happened here, you do have to understand that he does love Rachel to the extent that he's going to work these seven years and they're just going to seem like nothing to him because he loved her so much. If, in fact, you do the math, you're going to find out that in total he works 14 years for Rachel. And he's going to get her after seven because what's going to happen, he's going to marry Leah, then he's going to have to have a week, a celebration of that marriage, and then he's going to get to marry Rachel. But he's going to, he's going to get her after about seven years of work, but then he agrees to go ahead and work another seven. So if you think about it, he must really love this girl, okay? Because he's not just working seven years, he's ultimately going to work 14. All right, let's come back to our text then. So Jacob, he's going to serve those years, and he does so, 
they just seemed like a few days in because he loved her that much. All right, a couple of sweet little applications that we can make with regards to a crazy little thing called love. This idea, number one, of love as an investment in comfort. You might not see that initially, but I want you to remember that as Jacob flees camp, he's leaving with the understanding that mama's going to bring him home eventually. I doubt seriously as he's walking away from camp that he thinks he's going to be gone seven years. And by the way, it's a lot more than that. But uh, he, he goes and he is comforted by the love that he has for this woman, Rachel. And because of that, I think it can be implied that he was able to overcome his homesickness, his desire. Because remember, he's a, he's a mama's boy. And he, he can overcome that, the desire to rush home where he couldn't because his older brother would kill him. What am I going to do? He has to stay away. And he falls in love with Rachel, and I think that comforts him along the process. Not unlike what happened to his own daddy, Isaac. Go back several chapters, and you find Genesis 24. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, that's his mama, and took Rebekah, that's the mama of Jacob, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac, Jacob's dad, was comforted after his mother's death. So, in the same way that Isaac was comforted when his mama Sarah passed away, Jacob is comforted by Rachel when his mama is no longer around. And the scripture doesn't seem to indicate that Jacob ever gets to see her again in this life. And so that whole idea of love being an investment in comfort, I think, is rather interesting. I say investment because he, seven years. But those seven years are like a few days, but it's an investment. He is going to put some work, some investment, some refocusing of his mind, and take his mind off of missing mama to, I sure love that Rachel. I can't wait till I can marry her. Love's a crazy little thing, isn't it? Number two, a crazy little thing called love also leads you to the conclusion that love is a distraction of satisfaction. <laughs> Play on words. Distraction of satisfaction. It says that he works these seven years, which ultimately ends up being 14, but he works those seven years, and they seem like a few days to him. Like, it just went by real quick, because he could keep his focus on the goal. And he, he never took his mind off of where this is going to lead to. I am one day going to be with her. She's going to be my wife, and how great is that going to be? Cindy and I, next week, will be married 40 years. In fact, uh, uh, a week from today, we'll be married 40 years, and I can remember as uh, I had not yet moved out of my mom and dad's house. And we had, I had a calendar on the wall. And I remember that summer, as I kn knocked off the days, I checked them off on that calendar until I get to marry Cindy. It got me through the summer. It got me through some very bad times prior to that, you know, discouragement, all of those kinds of things, uh, because I knew that I was going to get to marry my wife. So love can be a distraction of satisfaction. Let me see if I can make a real personal application of that with regards to Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, we are told as husbands to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when you consider that phrase, the phraseology, you, you go back to the cross. You, Some of you have seen movies about that depicted the sufferings that Jesus went through and the horrific treatment that he got, etc. What helped Jesus keep the faith, if you will, through those miserable moments? What kept him strong? He gave himself up for the church. But what kept him strong during all of that? I'm going to tell you the answer. It's really cool. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. 
We're told to let, the Hebrew writer says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, just like Jesus, who, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. You see what I'm doing there? Love is a distraction of satisfaction. He is able to get through the cross because of the joy that is set before him, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew that one day he was going to go back to the Father. He knew that one day he the joy was going to be complete because he would have done the job of the Father and he would have saved his bride, the church, and that throughout eternity he could be with his bride, the church, Ephesians chapter 5. So you see a very personal application here for Jesus himself and you and I. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, you see a very personal application for husbands and the way that they should love their wives. Love can be a distraction of satisfaction. It was in the case of Jesus. He was distracted by the joy, the satisfaction that was coming. That kept him focused, if you will. That distracted him away from the pain, the agony, the hurt of the cross. And so he was able to endure it. Pretty neat application, isn't it? Number three. It's not just that love is an investment in comfort and a distraction of satisfaction, but love is a gift of selflessness. The third thing I see from this passage is that it says, they seemed like a few days because of the love he had for her. For her. I'm going to tell you a big life application for you. If he hadn't loved her, but had loved himself, those seven years would have been miserable. Because you know what he'd have been doing for seven years? Oh, woe is me. I miss my mom. I want to go home. I hate my life. If he had been loving on himself. But he took the love and he placed it in the heart of another. And so now he's focusing on someone else. You ever feel miserable? You ever feel, woe is me, nobody cares? I'm going to tell you what you need to do. Stop sulking and go out and serve somebody else. You start loving on other people. And trust me. Your, con your contentment level will rise exponentially. I want to make this interesting application with regards to Cindy and I. I often find myself asking for Cindy's permission. Uh, just yesterday, I, we were working in the kitchen, which is, that's her area. I've told her that. And I was doing something that she thought I could do better in another way and whatever. A lot of times I had to do a washing of dishes. I don't, I'm not a good dishwasher. I try. And I want to be nice to my wife, but sometimes she has to send it back two or three times for me to scrub it again. Anyhow, that's beside the point. I don't remember exactly what it was yesterday, but I asked her for permission. But I want you to read the whole statement. I often find myself asking for Cindy's permission, not because I need it. I don't. I'm the head of the house. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, even Ephesians chapter 5, which we saw on the previous screen, I'm the head of the house. I don't need her permission. But I often find myself asking for permission, not because I need it, but because I need her. I would suggest to you that it is impossible for a man to truly be what God wants him to be as far as the head of a home. It's impossible for you to be that if you don't first think of your wife and her desires and her needs before you ever think of your own. So the whole idea of Ephesians chapter 5, which we saw in the previous slide. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If Jesus was only thinking about himself, he would have stayed in heaven. 
We are to love our wives in the same way that Jesus loved, loves his bride, the church. Which means that Jesus doesn't need to ask permission for anything as far as the church is concerned. But he loves us. And yes, I think I can even say he needs us. There is a part of Jesus, because of the investment that he has made, with. he needs our love. He desires our love. He wants our love. And so, love is a gift of selflessness. I'm bigger, stronger, and a lot of other things. It's not smarter, but let's just go bigger and smarter. Bigger and stronger. I'm bigger and stronger than Cindy. I can get my way at the house as much as I want to get my way. If I wanted to bulldoze my way through it, I could get my... I could get whatever I wanted all the time. I could do that. But it'd be a miserable life. I often find myself asking for Cindy's permission, not because I really have to have it, but because I really have to have her. I need her. That changes the entire scenario. So, love, according to this one little verse, a crazy little thing called love, according to this one little verse, we get at least three applications. Love is an investment in comfort, it's a distraction of satisfaction, and it's a gift of selflessness. And you put that together along with other things, read 1 Corinthians 13 and other places that we have descriptions of love. But you put those three things together and you begin to have the makings of a really good relationship. And I'm proud to say that over the last 40 years, Cindy and I have practiced those three things. And we're as, we're as happy as two newlyweds 40 years later because of what God says we can do and should do. And if we do it, contentment will come our way. Well, here's the uh, questions from that particular lesson. I think we covered them pretty good. Go ahead and screenshot that and you'll have them. 